This podcast is powered by Podcast Network Asia. For more info on the shows and the network, visit www.podcastnetwork.asia and Podmetrics, the only analytics you'll ever need for your podcast. Sign up now for free at podmetrics.co. Hi, this is Michael Waits and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today should be a special one, I think, or at least I hope so. I am joined by Isaac Kazi. Isaac is a lot of things. He's a technologist, an entrepreneur, a darn good musician and singer. Can I say that? Yeah. And a close friend of mine as well. So today should be slightly different. Isaac, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Michael. How are you? There's that voice you have. It's really actually kind of cool. And I don't think I've ever said this to you, but there are certain songs, right, mm-hmm. that I hear, mm-hmm. whether it's not on the radio, right, but on Spotify or whatever, and I cannot stop thinking about your performances oh, really? on Soila. Do you know what I mean? You mean you mean like the same songs, like different songs? That if I hear that, no, no, if I hear that song, I'm like, that's not Isaac, right? <laughs> but that's how good the band is. Anyway. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We haven't seen each other in person in a while, mostly probably because of COVID-19, but how have you and your family been holding up? Well, uh, it's been uh, it's been tough, and it's been interesting as well at the same time. Uh, tough in the sense of uh, <laughs> you just lock down, you know, and you don't know what's going to happen yeah. over the next few months. So that's a bit stressful. Business as well, uh, you know, things right. are all on hold, and people are not really sure of what's going to happen. So people don't really invest in new projects or anything new, to be honest. So um, that was a bit tough, but uh, I think also relationships are quite tough, you know, when, you, when you're staying home all the time with <laughs> the same person, be that your girlfriend or a roommate or your family, things kind of get uh, a bit tough as well. So, but apart from that, I think it was, uh, it was good in the sense that it gave me the time to like uh, sit back and just rethink what I want to do <laughs> Yeah, because I was, I was in, in doing so many things, different things. So it gave me a lot of time to rethink strategy, think about the direction I want to go and think about the products I want to work on, also the kind of music I want to do, what also the direction I want to go in with music and stuff. So yeah, it was it was mixed, but it, I think overall it was it was good. Yeah, I feel lucky. So for me it's been a time of like focus and concentration and just you're right, like distilling things down to the things that I definitely know I need and the things that I know I mm. don't need anymore. Right, because it forces yeah. you to it just forces you to rethink, at least for me. Yeah. And like you said, I think it shines a light on not just your business relationships, but your personal relationships as well. It makes you figure <laughs> yeah, out like, sure. is this really what I want? And I figured out for me at least, like, yeah, actually I do. So it's been very good for me. But like you said, mm-hmm. I um quarantined in place. I stayed in place for I don't know, two and a half, almost three months, and that was weird because I'm a social person. But anyway, yeah, it's hard. Look, why don't we do this? Why don't you give our mm-hmm. listeners, I mean, I know you very well, but why don't you give our listeners a little bit of your background so they can get a better sense of who you are and the context of what we're going to talk about next. Okay. I'm, uh, so I was born in, Bang- uh, in India, Bangalore. I lived there throughout my childhood till about 12 years old, I think. Okay. I was born to uh, interesting parents as well. <laughs> <laughs> my mom is an uh, Anglo-Indian uh, Goan. All right. And, uh, she's Roman Catholic. Uh, my dad is Muslim. Yeah, and my whole all my friends were Hindu <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> but in and can I ask you this in India because this is just my ignorance, right? But in mm-hmm. India, does that matter when you're growing up? In other words, your mother is, you said, Roman Catholic. Your father is Muslim, and yep. Hindu is the thing I think that people think about when they think about India. Was that something yep. that 
that was clear to you when you were growing up? It was clear in the sense that I knew my parents' background. I knew where they came from. I knew I knew what religion they followed. But I did also know what religion my friends followed. So I, I think it kind of opened your mind up really early because you don't pay too much attention on those things. I mean, yeah. you, you take it for what it is. And uh, it's overall, it's... I mean, I was very lucky to be born in those kind of situations, you know. I think so. Um, yeah, so I think it, it was an interesting childhood, I'd say. So I think, you know, I grew up in like a one religion family. And for the longest time, I just thought the whole world was the same religion. right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's a bad thing, right? But for you, yeah. you grew up in this sort of multi-religious, multicultural family. And I think it, if, at least for me, in my, from my perspective it opens your brain up to this idea that not everything is exactly the same and it makes you more open-minded from a really young age, which cannot be a bad thing. Yeah, for sure. I'd agree with that. I think uh, just the fact that your friends believe in something else, you know, I mean, Hinduism is very complex as well. Every person has a different God and there, there are millions of gods. And right, right. so it's like a, it's like a religion of religions kind of thing in itself. Right, right. <laughs> so you've got, you've got, you've got your own, the whole thing happening there. And then you've got the Christians and then you've got the, the Muslims and but I don't remember any sort of friction with anybody as a child. Right. Like nobody really was like, oh, you're a Christian or you're a Muslim or you're a Hindu, so I'm not going to hang out with you or I'm not going to speak to you. It was it was more actually culturally. It, it uh, mattered more where you came from in India rather than what religion you were. So if if you came from a specific state, then uh, typically uh, people from that state would hang out together and speak their language. So. In Bangalore, it would be really interesting because it was kind of like a hub of uh, people would come in from all different places. Right. And uh, typically in a group of friends, you would have like guys from five, six different states speaking five, six different languages, different religions. So nobody really paid too much of attention to that. Sometimes maybe, but it was not like an overwhelming theme that went on all the time. I think that's the way it should be. It's just so much easier when everybody's getting along and when everybody understands that like their differences aren't separators, their differences are just things that make them more interesting. But we could talk about that forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, particularly in the current context. But you left yeah. India when you were, what, 12, you said? Yeah, 12. So my dad was in, uh, he, he was in oil and gas, actually. So he was doing, uh, he was working for oil and gas companies he started off in the Middle East, and then then he moved around after that. But uh, initially, when we were in India, he was in the Middle East for a long time, oh, uh, wow. Saudi to be more specific. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't really move to Saudi. But uh, when I was about twelve years old, uh, he moved to Oman. Nice. So, and uh, my brother was born as well at that point in time. Uh, so, and I was ten years old already. So, I think he made a decision to get us all to Oman. So we moved to Oman after that. And that was quite that was quite a change. Yeah, what kind of school do you go to in Oman? And, and to be fair, mm -hmm. uh, you were ten, so I moved when I was nine years old as well. I actually moved when I was eight too. So I've been through this process. It's a theme for me. Right. I feel like when I meet somebody that's moved around a lot, it's almost like a kindred spirit because yeah, do you know what I mean? Because kids that move around a lot know like there's that look in their eye, like yeah, I got it, that sucked, but. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but it, it, it teaches you a lot, right? And and you yeah. get along really well with those kind of kids as well, because because <laughs> they kind of get get where you come from. Yeah, because they get it without explanation, right? Yeah. Uh, well, in Oman, majority of the places in the Middle East are uh, the population is mostly expat. Yeah, I'd say about seventy percent and up. It is could be say fifty fifty percent and up is expat, and uh, most of the schools there are 
international schools, Got Indian it. schools, you know. So, And there's a very large Indian population in the Middle East. So we have a lot of Indian schools. For me to just uh, leave India and just move into an Indian school in Oman. <laughs> so that was, a, that was pretty uh, smooth. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's something I never would have guessed. I mean, I've been to... I've been to Oman, I've been to Dubai, I've been to the UAE, actually, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about the fact that there were a lot of Indians there, but you're right. Even in, even in the UAE, the population there is like 70 or 80% expats, only 20% local yeah. Emiratis, right? Exactly. Yeah. And you lived in Dubai as well, no? Yeah, so I lived in Oman for about uh, four, four and a half, five years. I think I moved in 95, 96. Okay. Uh, I was probably 12, I think, not 10, so around 12. I moved there. I studied there for about five years. And uh, uh, yeah, and then I moved to Qatar after that because uh, my dad moved from uh, uh, Oman to Qatar to work in a different oil company. So uh, we moved there. I stayed there for about a year and my parents were there as well. And then after that, I moved to Dubai to study actually for my engineering. So I did my computer science engineering in Dubai. You have a computer science degree? Yeah. How could I forget that? It's just my silliness, I guess. <laughs> so when you when you were in the Middle East, did you learn any of the local languages at all? Or was there just like, it, that's just not a thing that most expats do there, yeah? Strangely, no. Because I think you don't really interact with locals that much. Yeah, fair enough. And even when you do, they kind of speak English. And they kind of speak Hindi as well at times. Right, right, <laughs> so right. you, you really need to speak Arabic to, to anyone in, in the Middle East. You're dealing mostly with expats in most cases, so... Are you a Hindi speaker as well? Yeah, I can speak Hindi. I can speak Hindi. I can speak Kannada, which is the local dialect. Yeah. Karnataka, where Bangalore is, yeah. Uh, I can speak English, a uh, little bit of Thai, decent uh, <laughs> amount of Thai. And um, I can understand a few other Indian languages because growing up in India and uh, my mom's family spoke a different language. My dad's family spoke a different language. My friends would speak different languages. But at the end of the day, everybody would just try to speak English because everybody would understand each other. <laughs> We talked a little bit about this offline, but I just want to make this point about language because I think there are sort of three connecting factors here to what you do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Learning a local language is a window for me into local culture yes, as well as the food, right? Like you can't go somewhere mm. and not eat the local food, not understand a little bit of the local language and feel like you actually understand the culture at all. Is that a fair thing to say? Oh, yeah, it's completely fair. Understanding a language, I think, really gives you an insight into a country's culture or a region's culture, for sure. And the food as well. Yeah, the food and language, they tie in together. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, look, we've, we've talked about this a lot, but I lived in Japan for 22 years. And I think if I didn't understand Japanese at the level that I do, I would never understand what Japanese people are doing. Exactly. It just wouldn't make any sense. But because I do. And the other interesting thing, too, is... Because you understand the local language, when they speak English, in other words, when a non-native speaker whose language you understand speaks English to you, Mm. you can hear, you can feel the sort of translationary impact, if that's a word. Yeah, yeah. When they come into English. So when they say things like can do or can can, Mm. you're like, you know exactly what they're saying in their own language kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, you can translate that easily. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's true. Uh, I think you understand people better, and also if you if you speak the 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 language, if you speak their native language, I think you can form bonds easier. Uh, I think relationships are uh, faster and healthier in a sense. At least, even if you don't speak it, as long as you can understand how it works, 
I think that that really helps. Yeah, and this let's talk about this too, right? So your career, meaning your working career, actually started in Thailand, right? Because I think your family lived. Like, did you? Yeah, I'm putting it in quotes, but like, did you come home to Thailand after you graduated from university? It was kind of like that. So I I studied in Dubai for about five years. Yeah. So I did my engineering there for four years, and uh, I did I did my audio engineering after that for about a year. Oh wow! So during that time when I was in Dubai, my dad was in working in Nigeria. Okay. Uh, for for Shell, and uh, he got a, another opportunity in Thailand uh, through Chevron, I think. Naturally. Point. And, yeah. And then he moved here first. Uh, my my mom and my brother were back in India at that point. I was living in Dubai. He was uh-huh. in Africa. Then he moved to Thailand, and then he was like, "Yeah, come check it out. It's a cool place. You know, it's uh, it's chill. The people are nice. Uh, the weather is pretty decent as well." <laughs> so uh, so my my brother moved first, and. And then I was like, yeah, I'll come for a holiday kind of thing. So I came for a holiday for about 10, 15 days. And then I really loved it. Yeah, it's hard <laughs> In the not sense to. of, uh, yeah, f- many things, right? Yeah. The people, the culture, uh, the music, uh, lots of awesome musicians in Thailand. So I really loved it. So then I went back to Dubai and then I, I packed up in about two weeks, I think. And and I was like, that's it. <laughs> I'm leaving Dubai. <laughs> I'm coming to I'm coming to Bangkok. So yeah, I came here. I, I had no clue what I was going to do though. I just graduated. I had no experience. Um, but I I was pretty tech savvy, for most part, you know, since school. So I thought I'll figure it out. You studied computer science, you said, right? So you, yeah. if nothing else, you were an engineer. But did you write code? Well, so I got my first computer when I was in uh, in school in Oman. This was somewhere in 98, maybe, okay. 97, 98. This is the first proper computer. I'm talking like a Pentium 2 or something, <laughs> uh, not, not, not a 486. <laughs> I got it. Uh, I had those as well, but uh, yeah. Uh, I got my first good computer in 98-ish, I think, and then the internet was a new thing as well. We had this dial-up modems thing happening. And uh, that's when I, I really got an, a keen interest in computers because I always wanted to own one. So when I owned one, I just spent most of my time trying to figure out what's happening. Yeah. You know, <laughs> doing everything you can possibly do to a computer, <laughs> uh, even with the hardware aspect of it, but buying new hardware, putting it in, seeing what happens, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I started coding. I, got, I I really wanted to code, but it was, I think, a bit too much in like ninth or tenth grade. So uh, I went and did a few courses in India when we went back for holiday. Uh, I did learn C, C++, you know, oh, wow. didn't really know what to do with it at that point in time, but yeah. I wanted to learn it. So I learned it. <laughs> So I, I did, yeah, so I, I probably started to learn how to code when I was in like maybe ninth or 10th grade. Yeah, which is funny because when I was in, not 10th grade, but when I was in 11th grade, I remember this very clearly. You know, the only jobs back then were like doctors, lawyers, and just like whatever else was left over. Exactly. Kind of thing, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a lot older than you. But the one thing they did do was they had people come into class, right? We were in kind of advanced classes and they would come mm-hmm. in and say, look, this is a smart group of kids. You should all be computer programmers. And it just sounded like the most, bo- you know, think about it. Like we didn't even have the concept back then when I was graduating from high school of being like a computer geek because it didn't exist. Yeah. Like my first computer, literally my first computer was a TRS-80. Right. So it had a tape drive. Do you know what I mean? And right. like barely had a screen. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. Actually, that's not true. We had a right. shared computer in, in Connecticut that was even slower right. and worse. And it was literally like as big as a refrigerator. Yeah. And with like two, two, two MB of RAM or something like that. At the most. <laughs> I mean, you, you were laughing about 486s. I had a 286 on my desk. Anyway, 
um, at right. work. That's at Morgan Stanley. <laughs> but but the idea was that like back then you could become a computer programmer, but nobody thought it was cool. But by the time you graduated from university, obviously computer science stuff, being in the computer thing and the internet thing was like actually already cool. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I think initially, at least, uh, I'd say like the '90s, people didn't really see the point. They didn't see the value in this. They they, they never thought that you know everybody would own a computer and then there would be the internet that becomes a thing. You know, so it was very difficult to visualize at that point in time. What would you do with this stuff? It, it was pretty clear to me actually back then itself that I, I just wanted to do computers. I didn't want to do anything else because my dad, because he was in the oil and gas field, he wanted me to maybe, you know, explore that and see if that was fun. It was good for him though, right? So he, yeah, like it makes sense in a certain way, right? That made his life a good thing. Oh yeah. So he was like, you should just do this. Exactly. Yeah. But he was not very persistent on it. I get it, I get that it. He, he really wanted to see what I was interested in because right, if right. you're not interested in something, then you wouldn't end up doing anything properly. So, you know, so I think the interest was the key thing. So as long as I was interested in something, he was like, yeah, just go do that. It's fine. But how did you end up at like PRTR? So I moved to Thailand and then uh, I spent the first six months kind of exploring Thailand. I had a few friends that I knew through common friends in Dubai. Introduced me to some people here, so yeah, exploring, going around, checking out the music situation, checking out uh, everything else, seeing if I could get a job and stuff like that. So I, I realized pretty quick that I would really need to learn something that I could use right now if I needed to get a job. So, so I started studying after my computer science engineering. I started studying C sharp .dot net .dot yeah, SQL servers yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, and I started off this only online kind of like web design slash solution company thing. And um, I was applying for jobs as well. So I applied to pretty much every job I think I could find online. <laughs> done, done that, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and one day I got a call from a recruiter from PRTR and he was like, would you like to come in for an interview? We're looking for somebody to build some stuff for us because we have a lot of projects happening. And so I was like, yeah, sure. And I went in for the interview. I think my boss at that time, the MD of PRTR, he really liked me. He was kind of a person who really wanted to hire people who he could trust first uh, <laughs> than have than actually a person who's really technically good but he couldn't trust. So he was, yeah. uh, he was, he was, he was a cool person. So he really liked me, and then, and then, yeah, and then I started working at uh, at PRTR, which is a recruitment and outsourcing company in Thailand. And was that interesting to you? Because, and the reason why I ask is because you left there after a while and then went out and started kind of your own software company that builds software for recruitment companies. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved my time at PRTR because I had the, the freedom to, to build stuff and I, I was the only developer for the most part of it. Really? So, so they would, yeah, they would, they would get uh, lots of, they were an outsourcing company, right? Business process outsourcing. So they would, they would, they would get random projects and, uh, and for these random projects, you'd need to build uh, some sort of uh, uh, software to, some sort of content management system or validation system or, you know, so that, that, that's what got me started on to like really developing like hands-on developing software, deploying it to users, seeing them use it, getting feedback from them, improving it. So that whole cycle was built there. That's kind of cool. And then what was the genesis of RecruitCraft? Because at some point then you left, yeah, and just said, I want to yeah. stake out on my own. Because I worked there for about four years, okay. uh, from 2008 to 2012, and during that time, I, I built quite a few things for them, different projects, you know, they, they had a lot of projects going on. And uh, somewhere around 2010, I think, they wanted to buy an applicant tracking system, which is, which is a recruitment software. 
and we were checking out some vendors. This is pre-cloud era, right? So there's no cloud back then. So if you if you really wanted to implement some sort of system for your company, you'd really need to like uh, implement it in-house, uh, in the sense that they would implement the whole thing in-house. You'd train it. Everything would be in-house. So that was kind of the model back then, and uh, it was pretty expensive as well. You know, the old uh, style SAP SAP implementations and stuff. Yeah. You have the whole. See, so it was it was pretty expensive to be honest. They were they were probably charging us back then about like two three million baht to implement like a recruitment system. It was probably pretty good, and it was an Australian company, I think. Uh, but uh, the cost I found was a bit too much, and and you know uh, the users as well would not be would not really take advantage of 100% of that yet, because though, though that software was mostly built for for the Australian market, right. and it was being used in like. Uh, some parts in Europe and probably in the U.S. as well. So, so at that point, actually, I decided that uh, that I'm going to actually start building an applicant tracking system for them, that they could use in-house based on their requirements and specifications for a fraction of the cost, really. <laughs> so that's that's where my whole uh, journey in uh, building products started, actually. So <laughs> that's actually really interesting, and in a way, like this is this is one of the ways that most really successful companies start, in the sense that. You're not out there trying to figure out if there's a product market fit. You're not mm. like reinventing a wheel. You're just saying, I know there's a need for this thing because people are already asking me for it. Yeah. And I'm just going to start my own company to build it. And I presume at some point you thought, wait a second, if they need it, maybe other companies need it as well. And I can white label it to them or whatever that terminology yeah. is. Exactly. Yeah. That was the idea. So um, I started building it. Initially, it was just myself. I was doing most of the coding uh, but then over time, I, I found a few other uh, good friends, partners, and freelancers from different parts of the world uh, who I started collaborating with to actually build this. And um, once it was it was done, it was implemented, and was being used in the company, at that point in time, actually, I didn't have really much I could do there anymore because they didn't really need anything extensive built anymore. So it was mostly management and maintenance of, of current systems. Got it. So that's when I decided I'd leave and uh, go and pursue my own thing. In a sense, and was that the sort of recruitcraft? Yeah, that was recruitcraft. Yeah. yeah, that was that was the first company I built. So that was 2012. Um, I decided I'm going to go out, <laughs> <laughs> drop drop my salary, and uh, <laughs> go and find business and try to make money. <laughs> what did your dad say to you then? He was always supportive. My mom and dad were always supportive of whatever I wanted to do, especially especially if it was something to do with starting a business. You know, because my mom was quite entrepreneurial as well since the start she she exactly yeah so, so in bangalore she's she she's founded and ran one of the first few salons uh in, back in the 90s you know when there was no concept of a salon <laughs> in bangalore like you you'd have like one salon or two salons in the whole of whole of bangalore so that was that was the kind of time so she ran that for 10 years so i think a lot of it came from looking at her like you know that was the mentality and the attitude mostly it was like oh you want to do it and you think you can do it just learn it and do it kind of thing yeah, I mean, it's so much easier. It's not easy at all, actually, but just in relative terms, it's so much easier if the support system around you actually says, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that helps. Because if they're always pushing you into a corner and just going, ah, oh, you should just go get a job somewhere, it's hard then to strike out on your own. And just emotionally, it's just much harder, yeah, because starting a company is hard, just hard. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of stuff. I think initially it's the excitement of actually starting a company, and the fact that you own the company <laughs> and then you're like the CEO or whatever of the company. I think that's just the initial phase. I think once you get past that, I think it's 99% just grit and work. 
God, I could not, I could not agree with you more. Most people give up, right? This is something that I talk about a lot when I talk to entrepreneurs. They're like, oh, it's so hard. I'm like, yeah, it's hard. And the 10 other people that are trying to build the thing that you're building at some point will give up. Exactly. Don't give up because they will and you'll still be there. And then there will be no other choice for your customers and their potential customers. Exactly. It's, it's like 1% inspiration and like 99% <laughs> persistence, basically. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You gotta just uh, be at it, you know, and uh, try to make it work. And uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it, really. There's nothing more to it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things they taught us at Goldman Sachs was sales is all about activity. You just have to be active. You know that, right? Yeah. But, yeah. but this is not the only thing you've done, though. No, no. Here's what I really want to know: when you're out there building software on your own, when you're out there doing sales on your own, like what are the little things you learn? Like, what are the mistakes that you make or the little things you learn along the way so that when you start another thing, you're like, I'm not doing that again? Oh, that's a lot of things, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Let's say everything. (laughs) Everything I did before, I'm never doing again. I mean, everything you know, you thought it's going to be, it's not going to be. So I think think you go from there. And I think sales-wise, yes, I was not a salesperson, right? I was was an IT dude. I I should sit and code. But I was working for a sales organization, so everybody else around me was sales, in a sense. I'd, I'd go in and see how they pitch and how they do stuff, like you know what they do when they meet clients, because I was building CRM systems, and I really needed to understand how sales was done <laughs> uh, in order to actually build a system for them. So I think learning is one thing, and then going and doing it is another thing. So selling the software, meeting people, meeting business owners, meeting recruitment companies, seeing what their problems are and seeing how you can fix it. So one of the first things I think that happens is that you meet different clients, every client needs something else, and then you go about just building everything for everyone. I think one of the one of the interesting things you've said a couple of minutes ago was the th- all the things you think it's gonna be, it's not gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a simple <laughs> phrase, but this is the thing that I try to tell entrepreneurs as well, or founders. It's like you have this grand vision or this right. grand plan and that grand yeah. plan just evaporates. And I, you know, I say this on a lot of my podcasts, but I, th- I think it was Mike Tyson who said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the nose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of what entrepreneurialism is like. It's like, I have a plan, I'm gonna execute my plan, and it's boom. Yeah, I think it's more about how you adapt after that. Once, once you figure out where you're at, then the only thing next to do is how do you adapt? How do you, how do you adapt to what the market needs rather than you going in the direction of what you think is the market needs. So there's a huge difference there. I think that's one of the key points that you learn when you start your own company and you're responsible for everything. I mean, the buck stops at you, right? Absolutely. And and look, I think if you're a boxing fan, you understand what somebody says when, you know, the announcer says, that guy's got a strong chin. Yeah. yeah. Meaning if you punch him in the face or if you give him a good shot, he just kind of shakes it off and just goes back to fighting. Oh, yeah. I think your successful entrepreneurs and your successful company builders have a strong chin, oh, yeah. for lack of a better term, because you're always getting punched in the face. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good thing. You know what I mean, though, right? You're always getting punched in the face, yeah. I mean, it's like it's like any any athlete, isn't it? It's uh, I, I watch a lot of UFC, at least recently in the last four or five years, and uh, they get famous, they get success, and they get fame. That's just 1% actually at the end. Mm-hmm. But the work they put in right from training from the time they're five or ten to like getting there and uh, making it happen is like it's like a journey by itself it's exactly it's, yeah yeah I mean look I say this a lot too everyone's an overnight success five years later <laughs> exactly <laughs> pick a time even, frame yeah I mean everyone right everyone for that matter even if you look at the dude who built Angry Birds it was big at some point 
I don't know the number, but it was a big number of games that he built before that, <laughs> before you could actually build Angry Birds. Of course. You know, anybody for that matter, even Elon Musk. I mean, he almost went bankrupt how many times? Many times. And you, look, you can't get to Angry Birds unless you first built Angry Cows. Do you know what I mean? The, the game that nobody played. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Isn't that fair? Like, I think that's fair. Yeah, that's, that's I think, fair. Yeah. You got to really figure out what people need. And only that comes only with time. And actually spending time building stuff, I think. The day you stop building stuff as an entrepreneur, I think I think you failed in a sense. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. The, it's the day you die, I think, right? Because, or when your soul dies, because the idea for most entrepreneurs is not that the specific thing that they're building is the most important thing. It's the fact that they're building something. Yeah, I think that's important. Even with music, it's the same thing. Just the fact that you're on it, you you have regular gigs happening. You're going. You're singing. You're playing. Itself is is an effort, and it has to go on like that. Because if you stop, and then you hope one day that you're gonna just become magically something, right. or music is gonna be famous, and it ain't gonna happen. But, but but music is a great analogy, I think, to programming and to company building as well, right? Yeah. You know, I watch you play. I watch Patty play the guitar, and you just think, oh, he's a natural. Yeah, that guy's crazy. When I started off with music, it was mostly out of because of moving around so many countries and not having consistent uh, groups of friends you could hang out with. Right? Got it. Yeah. So you you move one country, go to another. You you don't know anyone. You don't have anything. The only thing you've got with you is you've got your computer, and you've got access to the internet at least in the later part of the nineties. Yeah. And you've got your guitar and keyboard or whatever is it that you have, and you sit with that basically, <laughs> and then you try to see what you can do with it. But but I think there's an equivalency somewhere between writing music, playing music, getting good at some kind of musical instrument and being able to code in C sharp because, and again, I'm not a musician and I'm not a coder, but I can see the dedication and the growth that it requires to be able to do both of those things. And I think that, I think that there's a community of coders that are also musicians. Yeah. I think those things go together because, I think so. because there's I a think logic so, yeah. there. Think about it. Yeah. What is the name of the software that Apple ships to edit music? It's called what? Logic, Logic Plus, Logic, yeah. or whatever it's called, yeah. Logic X, yeah. Logic X, yeah. but that's not an like that's not a coincidence. Yeah, it's not actually. It's not. I mean, yeah. I mean, there is there's learning music. There is there is producing and making music, and then there is producing it. I think at the end of the day, it all comes down to making something. It's creating something, and in order to create something, I think you need a skill. You need a skill to create something, and I think it's the amount of time that you spend in that uh, specific area, like whatever skill you're trying to learn. So if you're trying to learn the guitar. I mean, the learning curve is huge. Massive. I mean, till, I've until tried. you can make any sort of decent sound come out of the thing. Uh, <laughs> same thing with singing as well, and same thing with app development as well. It takes a long time for you as a coder to understand uh, what the business user needs and to be able to translate that and build a product that they can use. You know, so that, that there's a journey there that takes a decent amount of time. Uh, so yeah, there is a lot of similarity in the sense that learning a concept, using that concept to implement and build a solution. I think that's pretty much the same thing. But don't you think singing as well, right? In other words, yeah. even if you're born with a great voice, you still have to train your voice to make great sound and to understand how to make your voice into an instrument that other people yeah. would want, like to listen to. If you compare it to like an instrument, I think I'd say it's a little bit easier because it's more natural because you are, you are the instrument in this case. Fair enough. And uh, you, you, you speak and you talk. So if you can talk, then you can kind of try and sing. It's, it's a bit natural. You've got words and melodies that you kind of try to follow. So, yeah. 
I think voice takes training too, right? So, so it, it takes training. The simplest way to train actually to sing is to just sing along with whatever is it that you like. You know, that's how I learned to sing. I didn't really have anybody teach me how to sing. I would just play a record and then sing along with the dude, <laughs> whoever the artist was. Right. And, uh, you know, keep going at it for a good few years till somebody says, oh, you know, you got a pretty good voice. Um, I mean, well, voice is one thing. I think anybody can learn to sing. I don't think it's uh, you're born with a voice or you're born with anything. It's just how much of interest do you have in that thing and how badly do you want to do it? Right. If you really badly want to sing and then you're listening to songs and you have a decent background of music where you've listened to music for a decent amount of time in your life, it shouldn't be too hard to at least make the first move and start learning. You know, Isn't performing in a way similar to releasing code or building a product from scratch? And, and I'll tell you why I think that. Because at some point, you have to get on stage. Yeah. So I remember, you know, my daughter sings a little bit, right? And I remember, not this year for her graduation, but the previous year, she was involved in a show that they were doing. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting outside, they did this outdoor show, and I was like, I couldn't be more proud of the team with which she was singing. And they were like, yeah, we didn't do so well today. Mm. And I said, yeah, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but you still got on stage. Exactly. And everybody who sits in the audience and says, yeah, that wasn't so good, mm. doesn't have the guts to get on stage and they'll never get to the stage where you are. And that's the point. And software is the same way. Mm. We talk about this a lot in the entrepreneurial world, right? And that is release something. Yeah. And get the feedback. Anything. Yeah. And kind of like in software, your user is your stage, right? When you deploy your software. Absolutely. And then you have 250 people using it or whatever the number is. And that's your audience. Those, those are the people using it. <laughs> They're using it to do work. But it still has to be good. I think that's the key. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. But I mean, you have to just get it out there. And that's the thing that I was trying to tell these kids. Yeah. And they were kids. They were 17 or 16 years old. The thing is, mm -hmm. you had the balls to get up on stage and expose yourself to the criticism, the potential criticism that people were not going to like. You're playing because there were two guitarists, a piano player, and a singer. Mm. You did it. Yeah. And that's the same thing like being an entrepreneur. And that's why I like this equivalency between... Music, whether it's writing music, playing music, performing music, and writing code, yeah. deploying code, and trying to sell an app. I think a big part of that is teamwork as well, how, how, how you work with the team. you know. So I think it's the same with music. It's the same with development. It's about working in a team and being efficient and making it happen. And nothing is perfect. Nothing will ever be perfect, actually. It can only get better. Yeah. So from that point of view, your first stage appearance or your first app deployment It's, it's your first, yeah, right? And it's not going to be perfect. As long as it works and at least somebody's happy and there is there's some sort of positive thing coming out of it, I think it's, it makes it worthwhile to pursue. I agree. Look, this has yeah. been an amazing and not surprising conversation with you. We'll have to come back and <laughs> we'll have to come back and do this yeah. again. It's always easy to talk to friends. I really want to thank you for yeah. doing this, Isaac. This was really awesome. Awesome. We should do a part two, maybe. Go do a little more deep dive into technology, maybe. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Happy to do a part two. Anytime you want. Sure, sure. Sounds good.